0: Hello there, I'm Christopher Lee, and this, this is Sitrep. Sitrep, your defence magazine from BFBS Radio. You're very welcome. In the next 60 minutes, Obama has spoken. No more happens. Is the war on terrorism all done by July 2011? Or is that election speak? And, as if nothing happened, the Iraq inquiry tells us why we went to war and why we cocked up. Why no one remembers the C-6 summit, other than Sitrep, of course, and what's the difference between a pitbull... And a hockey mum. Everybody knows the answer. Nobody can remember it. The Obama-Afghanistan story shifts to NATO today. Foreign ministers meeting in Brussels today and tomorrow. And then Monday, defence ministers are in Mons on the line from the Centre for European Reform. Thomas Valasek. Thomas, today, uh, foreign ministers, Monday, defence ministers. What do we get from both? Got any ideas yet?
1: no doubt a sense of relief from the Europeans that they finally know what the strategy is it's been a it's been a long time coming and, and, and
0: 92 days of, pardon me 92 days
1: Indeed, indeed and and the weight matters i'm not just being cute the reality is the weight matters because of course um a lot of us most of us have been waiting with our own strategy reviews until uh, president obama unveils his and and it is a reality that because it's taken so long to unveil the new U.S. strategy, an awful lot of Europeans, have, uh, have um, their feet have grown cold uh, in the meantime. So the, the delay will have an impact on European willingness to send forces to Afghanistan.
0: Now, we know at the moment that so far extra troops are coming from Poland, Slovakia, Turkey, Georgia, South Korea, uh, Italy, and I think some like uh, Montenegro. But the U.K. and the United States want extra troops from France and Germany. Now, they're not going to be telling us that, are they, until next January at the London meeting?
1: By the sounds of it, that, that's the case. Uh, there's really two uh, two perspectives to take on the issue. One is short and one is long-term. In the short term, of course, the Americans can do the search largely by themselves. Um, uh, the 30,000 troops they send uh, is likely to dwarf any future European contribution. The, the long-term question, though, is... Why should the Americans take or continue to take NATO seriously if, if, uh, if they have to always contribute a disproportionate share of the forces in the future? That's, of course, not a criticism that applies to, to the United Kingdom, Holland or Denmark or, or the Central European countries that have sent proportionally to their GDP and population an awful lot of soldiers to Afghanistan. But it is a case that uh, that most of the uh, European members of NATO are, are not paying nearly as much attention to Afghanistan as as uh, the uh, Britain, uh, London, uh, Washington, or uh, or The Hague. Uh, and that is affecting America's willingness to run things through NATO in the future.
0: Yeah. John Thomas, I was listening yesterday, yesterday morning to uh, NATO Secretary General, um, Anders Föhr-Rasmussen, <coughs> and he said, you know, this is not just America's war. Now, that's why I heard it. The problem is that many NATO members think that's exactly what it is. It's America's war.
1: Of course, and, and that, that problem is partly, of course, of, of President Obama's uh, making. As I said, uh, he has taken so long to, to think through the, uh, uh, the new strategy um, that he has inadvertently sent a signal to the Europeans that, uh, that America matters more than, than others, uh, that, uh, that he's going to, willing to make them wait, uh, and that, of course, uh, says an awful lot about the, the role that Europeans uh, and other NATO allies uh, play in, in American thinking about Afghanistan. So... They themselves are partly guilty of, of propagating that, uh, that unfortunate uh, sense.
0: I was also thinking that the um, that NATO just doesn't sit there and wait for um, President Obama to speak, and they've got other things on their mind. I was reading something of yours, I think, uh, on the NATO-Russian relations problem. That's pertinent to the Afghanistan debate, but the outcome is likely to be different, isn't it?
1: Uh, correct. Those, those issues are related, even, even if indirectly, but it is a case that... Um, not all NATO allies worry about the same things. Where you, where you stand depends on where you sit. And of course, uh, uh, where the central and northern European allies stand is is that they are, they worry about Russia. They um, they think that uh, Russia's increasingly uh, assertive behavior may bring it into a confrontation with NATO, and they are demanding that the alliance takes these worries take these worries seriously and start and, and put in place defensive measures, plans, exercises, infrastructure. Prepare for the possibility. The link to Afghanistan is simple, uh, and the Norwegians have made it particularly eloquently. They say it is going to be increasingly difficult for us to explain to the public why we need forces in Afghanistan. And of course, the Norwegians have, uh, uh, relative to their population, an awful lot of forces in Afghanistan. But it is going to be increasingly difficult to sustain that if NATO is not seen as doing something for our own security. And that's really the debate within NATO, one also that influences very heavily the talks on the new NATO strategic concept. How do we balance this competing, these different uh, interests and and priorities of the various NATO allies?
0: Thomas, Thomas Velasek, thank you very much indeed. Now, a lot of talk in the UK media, um, it seems to me that this morning and in the later papers yesterday, are not supporting the Afghanistan operation and how has the Obama and Brown announcements gone down with the UK media? With me, Senior Global Radio News Correspondent Christopher Walker. Um, Christopher, if I said to you, what are the mm-hmm. papers saying? You'd tell me a heck of a lot um, because apart from <laughs> – apart from, apart from, I'm just looking at the sort of papers you've got there and the, and the highlights – Everybody's got a big opinion, and it's not all, all pro-Obama, is it?
2: No, uh, very uh, cynical, I would say, on the whole. Uh, I thought perhaps the, the remark that summed it up best was Simon Jenkins, and, who, the Guardian, who wrote uh, also the best book on the Falklands War, and he said, uh, all, all that matters now is finding an acceptable smoke stream, something along the lines of surge, bribe and leave. The question is, how many corpses will that t- Take. Well, that was, you know, not him, not Jen- Mr. Jenkins out on a limb, but a fairly uh, common view. The, Gu- the the leader article in The Guardian, I thought, was quite clever. It said that Mr. Obama has taken ownership of this war, but by accepting at face value the assumption that al-Qaeda still needs Afghanistan, he could, like Bomber Bombardier Yasserian in the book Catch-22, written by Joseph Heller, he would go to crazy to keep on flying more missions and sane if he didn't. But if he was sane, he would have to fly them. So he's completely caught in a catch... 22. I suppose even the Telegraph uh, hasn't been as supportive as you might have expected. I think, you know... I mean, you're, you're
0: suggesting that the Telegraph base fundamentally uh, is supportive of the concept of the war. Of the war. But not the, the and new And not a of Mr.
2: Obama personally, but the fact that he's, uh, he's prepared, you know, to increase troops, you would have thought the Telegraph would be behind mm. that. But actually, their headline is quite a strong one in its own right, I thought, an exit strategy, not a plan for victory. Yeah. And that's what people have noticed, that date, which as you probably mm. noticed, after he delivered the original, rather lengthy speech at West Point, uh, including to an audience which included a picture of, of a man reading a book, How Can We Kill Obama, uh, uh, somewhere, Al Laden in the middle of it, mm. um, was you know, that he, he's, he's going to start pulling out the troops before the campaign for his re-election... Well, Why the, do you think he's doing that? But that's a terrific message to the Taliban, isn't it? Yeah. We're going to defeat
0: you. But by the way, uh, what, my, uh, what about the sort of um, uh, the sort of the, the popular newspapers, which presumably are, are, are trying to get at middle middle Britain?
2: Yes, uh, the Daily Mirror, which is uh, you know uh, the Labour supporting
0: paper. If they uh, and very much read by, uh, by the British troops, forces.
2: Yes, their thing is it's the final ga- uh, the final gamble. Um, Maybe next year or the latest the year after we'll be able to look back and say December 2009 was a turning point. But they also say, uh, again, rather, you know, one might say defeatism, the Taliban will only be beaten when malleable factions strike a deal with Kabul uh, to give up armed
0: resistance. Right. Anybody um, actually prove uh, this Obama speech?
2: uh, Not really (laughs) that I've come across. There are one or two uh, remarks... that are a little bit pro. One of the papers said it was, uh, you know, not good rhetoric, but not particularly strong on any new suggestions. They were warm... I think that if I was to sum up the total view, a warmed up idea mm-hmm. of what appeared to work in Iraq of having a surge and bribing the Sunni tribes to fight on the American side while getting the country completely wrong and I thought and Alexander might be interested in this that the strongest criticism of all was a very interesting interview in the Financial Times mm. with the former Russian commander in yes, Afghanistan. Yeah, and it's, uh, I mean, it just, it was withering really, you know. What are these people doing? We had 300,000 men there and we couldn't do anything out of them, including 120,000.
0: Right. Well, um, the Alexander he's talking about is the former Kremlin foreign policy advisor, Alexander Nikrasov, who's just joined us in the studio, with Dr. Martin McCauley, the global analyst at uh, University College London. Alexander, tell me, I mean, do, um, i can say, do the old generals, uh, the Russian generals, look at this and say, it's crazy, crazy? Well,
3: he actually said that Americans are making exactly the same mistakes, General Yermakov as we did, and he said, we also trained as many troops as we could on the ground, Afghan troops. They would run away immediately once the battle would commence. (laughs) He would say we would set up a local authority which would disintegrate the moment we leave the area, and uh, it would be copied um, by Bamudjahed. They would have a ghost authority. At the moment, I was told that in 34 provinces of Afghanistan, in 33, there is a shadow Cabinet sitting, the <laughs> Taliban's <laughs> waiting when, you know, when the troops could pull out. He also said that um, the reason why the, the Soviet uh, policy failed completely is because not enough money was pumped into the social development, into specifically, you know, sort of attracting people to the idea that this is a new government with a new. Something to offer. And I think that the current Karzai administration doesn't offer anything to the people. I think the point
4: is worth making that the Soviet army was not militarily defeated in Afghanistan. The Soviet military was defeated politically. Gorbachev uh, decided uh, in many ways his weakness... He said, right, we have the whole Islamic world against us politically, we have to withdraw. So, military, that's a very good, great warning.
2: I was on the road when they left. They didn't look very happy. They were getting out of there, skid-daddling as fast as they could, looking out from the back. (laughs) And the same
4: thing will happen to the American army in Afghanistan. They will not be defeated militarily, but they have to uh, be aware that that they may lose it politically.
0: Yeah. Um, It was interesting that most people from the I suppose, from the newspaper reviews that uh, Christopher Walker was reading. Most people are saying this is an exit strategy, uh, but if you listen to the NATO Secretary-General um, uh, for Ramsons, he's saying, no, 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 it's a transition strategy. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's garbage, isn't it, oh, Christopher?
2: Well, I would have thought so. Tra- transition to these gentlemen that Alexander and Martin have brought up. Uh, I mean, don't forget that your one white <laughs> hope... Is President Karzai, who's just won a patently diddled election, which everybody's admitted was diddled. I mean, there's no sort of replacement for him, shadow, honest man. The main point
4: about Mm. Obama's speech was it was a political speech. It was not a military speech. Uh, It addressed the American people. It, It appealed to patriotism. Uh, he went back over the history. It was a good speech, wasn't it? It was a very good speech, went over the history of it and so on, and that's all pulled together and so on. In other words, a political speech. If it had been a military speech, he would have said, right, the success will come in the social and economic development, education, because the uh, uh, soldiers and uh, the police are illiterate.
0: Okay, let me give you this one. You
4: can't read an ID. Uh,
0: He says, uh, or the the president said, July uh, 2011, that's when they'll start to to withdraw because they believe the handover will be starting to work. Now, we actually know that nobody really knows whether that's true or not because you can't know whether it's true. We're also being told that come December next year, so 12 months from now, that the president may sort of rethink this. Now, I offer Mm -hmm. you this date. It is the 10th of March and it is 2012. And on the 10th of March 2012... We see the first C-5s landing in uh, America and coming out of the back are the first lot of American troops because two days later it is the New Hampshire primary and that is the biggest date uh, mm-hmm. apart from the, uh, the Arkansas or whatever it's called, caucus. That is the biggest date in uh, President Obama's mind at the moment. But th- isn't that the cynicism of it all? No, won't it? But won't it depend how many
2: planes have landed earlier with coffins of American young men in? And uh, <coughs> if he's proved that his surge, they don't film them. <laughs> Well, I mean, they may not film them, but people are aware of the numbers. If it's proved that his tactics of sending in 30,000 more soldiers, which was a little bit of a fudge, not as many as the army wanted, but, you know, more than some people thought he might, uh, has failed, I don't think just flying home a couple of token planes just before the primary is going to do him a lot of good.
4: Well, John McCain was interviewed last night. And he made John McCain, the, who, who, who... Who could have been president. In other words... If people had voted for him. If you'd been president, what would you have done, uh, type mm. of question. Yeah. And he said that uh, Britain and America have to accept that the beginning of the surge will result in higher casualties than ever before. Well, if you've got more numbers there, you've yes. got more targets. And the Taliban but have really, that, too, but, haven't they? Yeah. But that it will then get better. And if it doesn't get better, then mm. it has to be rethought.
0: OK, listen, yeah. listening to that, I hope is the BBC's um, uh, political correspondent, Rob Watson, also, as everybody remembers, uh, BBC's United Nations correspondent, then Washington correspondent, then uh, defence and security correspondent. Rob, with that sort of bag of uh, experience, how did you rate the Obama
5: speech you're about to say they'll, they'll give me a real job soon after that, uh, <laughs> after that <laughs> Get state. the CV here Well, you know, I, I guess the one thing the, the one point that I was trying to make uh, internally to my colleagues at the BBC about the speech, and you've already gone over it and something that perhaps hasn't been brought out enough in the media coverage is that you know my sources amongst those people who are directing this policy at the White House uh, amongst the experts, the people at the uh, Department of Defence, Central Command They weren't saying. They weren't saying to people like me. Look, this. this, You know, few we at last we figured out what to do in Afghanistan. I mean, they will tell you it is. It is deeply risky sending more troops, given the the fraudulent election, given the the difficulties in Afghanistan. It's just that they think it's less risky and less awful than just pulling out altogether now and possibly seeing the collapse, as they really fear, of neighbouring Pakistan. So I think that's one of the elements that I would want to bring out, that it hasn't been so well reported. Nobody at the White House, nobody who's supporting this policy deep down thinks, yeah, we've cracked it. It's just they think that it's the least worst option.
0: Right. Defence Secretary Gates, um, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, Admiral Mullen, and Secretary of State uh, Clinton were down on the hill across on the hill yesterday, selling this policy. Uh, I mean, that a, that's a, a, a sort of shows how risky it is, that the fact that he has to send the mob-handed down there in front of the senators to try and sell the story. Uh,
5: to some extent, yes. I mean, of course, the, the way in which uh, the process works in Washington is that that would happen anyway. You can't just send 30-odd thousand troops off somewhere and not expect to... To give uh, Congress a, a bit of a tip-off. Whether it works or not is another matter, and again, I, I come back to this point, a lot of people have been analysing, so what was the speech like, how did Gates and Clinton do in front of Congress, and always in the back of my mind is Iraq, and when I was in Washington, the, the White House were constantly berating us that the media coverage of what was happening in Iraq was way too negative. But, of course, everything changed when the policy changed and more troops went and the surge worked to some extent and violence went down. My my point being that you can have all the analysis you like of of this speech and all the discussion, but the only thing that's going to turn around public and political opinion in the United States, Britain and other NATO countries is if things get better on the ground. Nothing else is going to do it.
0: Hmm. Just before we move on to Iraq, um, my impression of the speech, and and, and I sat watching it on television here in the UK, was that it was a, a pretty wonderful speech, not so much on Afghanistan, but it was President Obama defining what he thought America is.
5: Well, he is a class act. What can one say? Uh, He he has that ability, and and Bill Clinton had it with some lines, and and indeed George Bush also had it, that ability to sort of set out what is it that America is all about. I remember Bill Clinton once saying there's nothing... There's nothing, uh, there's nothing wrong with America that what's right about America can't put right, something line to that effect. And, and, and Obama has that ability as well. There's, there's no doubt about it. He, he is a class act. But again, I, I go back to this point that you know, nobody disputes that he's very good at explaining what America is about. Nobody disputes that he's very good at delivering a speech. But again, on this issue of Afghanistan, it, it really will depend on people being able to say, yeah, you know what, even the dimmest journalist can say, hmm, things are a bit better now. And until that happens, I'm not sure that anything else much counts.
0: Yeah. Just last quick question. Why why did it take 92 days to come up with this?
5: It's a very good question. I, I mean, I think part of it, of course, just on a logistical and rather boring, tedious level, is it's just a complicated process, sticking policy together in Washington. You've got an awful lot of actors, and clearly in this case, some of them pulling in very, very different directions. But, but I guess that, that the bottom line is that uh, President Obama has realized that this is a decision that could make or break his presidency. One always wants to be careful about overstating these things, and therefore it's not something that he wants to consider lightly. And I think, again, it goes back to the point that I made at the beginning. One of the reasons why this decision was so difficult to take and took so long is that they're not choosing between one option where you think, yeah, got it, and another one where you think, now that's terrible. They're all very, very difficult and risky options.
0: mm Now to Iraq, or the Chilcot Inquiry, sitting still to examine the UK involvement in that war from before it started to the present time. Um, An interesting week today, um, Rob, uh, the then Chief of the Defence Staff, Admiral Lord, Lord Boyce, interesting stuff to say about what the Americans thought when uh, he said well we've got to put this through the de- uh, democratic process.
5: Uh, absolutely he's really stuck the boot in Lord, Lord Boyce, there's absolutely no doubt about it and he's stuck the boot in on a, on a number of fronts but Uh, In general, this week, we've moved on from what we were doing last week, which was looking at the the diplomacy and the sort of origins of the war. When did the policy change? Now we've got on to the point of looking at execution, how the war was planned uh, and executed, and, of course, on the post-invasion, the post-fighting phase. And Lord Boyce has really... Well, it's difficult to think who he hasn't given a good clobbering to. He's given a clobbering to the Americans, saying that they were just utterly unrealistic about what was going to happen after the fall of Saddam Hussein, there was just no planning to speak of whatsoever. He's also critical of British politicians, and in particular, I guess, of the Prime Minister, Tony Blair, then Prime Minister, and Jeff Hoon, for for not allowing him uh, the time to do the proper military planning before the invasion because they didn't want it to leak out and therefore scare everybody at the United Nations. And then thirdly, uh, Lord Boyce and... um, Sir Kevin Tebbett, who was the, uh, at the Ministry of Defence, have really got a good kicking to DFID and Claire Short, saying that once the invasion this was under... This is the w-
0: overseas development, Yeah, there uh, was
5: is. a real kicking in a sense of saying, we, you know, we tried to get them to to help out once we were there in Basra, and they didn't think that the people were poor enough.
0: This, uh, this Chilcot inquiry, which some people said, oh, waste of time... It, it's, it's not a waste of time, is it?
5: Well, certainly not a waste of time for, for journalists, that's for sure. But, but I mean, to, to answer the question more seriously, it's not a waste of time in that it's taken. It's taking this big view. It's not just a specific issue like intelligence or a, a, a one or two things that have gone wrong. It's looking at the big picture, and in that sense it's very valuable. And all the people who have appeared so far are, have been key players, and they've really got into the weeds there. I, I think the, the the issue of... The people who are saying, oh, this inquiry, it's a waste of time. For them, I think it's less about the proceedings than what it comes up with. And, of course, those people who really got the bit between their teeth about how opposed they were to the war in Iraq will, will probably only be satisfied if they see... a. Uh, Tony Blair and others, hanging from a tree. <laughs> uh, and, and, and even those who are a bit less kind of rabid in their opposition, I, I mean, I think that, they're dain- that for them, <laughs> that, that it's not so much the proceedings, but it, it'll be in the conclusions of the report. So in other words, there is a fear among some that you could have all these kind of frank and extraordinary and interesting exchanges, but at the end, you get a sort of civil service-speak report in which um, everybody get a, gets away scot-free.
0: Right. Rob Watson, thank you very much indeed. Christopher Walk, I don't know how many of these sort of inquiry things you've sat through, um, but it it strikes me that the evidence on most inquiries, we actually don't normally take as much notice as we're taking of this one.
2: No, you're, I think you were quite right. Everybody was pretty dismissive before it started, and now, you know, you've got to book your seat early because you don't know what's going to happen. E- every day there's been, I agree with you about <laughs> Boyce uh, and then with Rob, but, I mean, there's also been other fascinating stuff, and we've, we've hardly got started yet. What's going to happen when uh, after the fascinating stuff and the people doing the questioning, who I, I, I think, you know, uh, the <laughs> former... Moscow ambassador, Lyon, has been very... Sir you know, Rod Lyon. Sir Rod Lyne has been very impressive and showing himself to be quite a good hard questioner. When they've got all... When Blair comes, I think the point is that well, the, ev- is. the evidence will have...
4: No, no, will Blair, have Tony, have Blair, Tony Blair will, he will, absur- come. will answer Martin. every question by saying, I believed that. I was absolutely convinced that. Well, at the time. At the time. And all the evidence pointed to that, and I believed that and I was absolutely convinced. And what can you say to that? You can well, say, yeah, how, you can say well, you well,
2: did you get a no level I mean, it's no. a fairly, if he believed that guff,
4: yes, that's uh, what how to, did he
2: run the country to, for 12 that's years? That's how he's going
0: to spy, uh, uh,
4: get round the questions. Alexandra, I have to tell
0: um, listeners that Alexandra also is the editor-in-chief of uh, Stirring Trouble Internationally, um, and a rather satirical website. It is a
3: satirical website. Well, it is
0: a satirical <laughs> website. What have <laughs> you been saying in your website about this, if anything?
3: Well, we had a uh, uh, sort of a one re- response, but let's see. Let's wait and see what happens. But I think that that's very generous. That, on your that, that basically what we have here is this: um, nothing of any sensation. No sensations are happening. I don't understand why some people are saying wonderful stuff. What we are witnessing here is that some people are now now know how this whole political process unravels, and many people are, are wondering why on earth is this happening? There's no communication between the capitals. You know, the the ambassador says one thing, the government says, no, 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 we're doing another thing. Then today, I think it was told, or yesterday, that there was such bad communications, uh, that total misunderstanding between London and Washington, that they were actually asking the embassy to clarify, what is it exactly that they mean by saying that or that? So, in a sense, it shows us that it's total confusion, even when we're talking about war. But I think that uh, Rob was right in saying that people expect that somebody has to take the blame. And we are seeing, as the Russians are saying, look at this Western democracy, the buck stops nowhere. Mm. You know, it's a collective, like the Politburo, it's a collective responsibility. No one is responsible. Do you know
0: the Pentagon, um, it was said that the Pentagon, you know, the corridors in the Pentagon, just a continuous circle, yes. they just go round and round. And that's what they said. It was built like that with these circles of corridors, so you can kick the buck down the corridor, and it'll just go round and round and round, and all you've got to do is nip in a doorway. The other thing about why they talk to each other, I have to tell this, and oh, why should I be telling this, but I'm going to tell you, it. anyway. Um, <coughs> somebody was saying to me that the, uh, the ambassador, uh, Chris Mayer, in, in Washington, wasn't being told by the uh, Foreign Office whether the Foreign Secretary was going to Washington in the middle of this, yeah. and he said, uh, you know, I'm hearing from the State Department, but not from you, can you please tell me, is the Foreign Secretary coming, yes or no? And the answer from the Foreign Office came back, yes, repeat, no. <laughs> now, that is the level of uh, of what was going on. And I think perhaps Chilcot, uh, I don't know, it's, 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 it's yes, Minister, but over a serious subject. It sounds
4: it? like the beginning of the First World War. Uh, really? How, how it broke out. Because you had exactly the same thing. Uh, they all thought... Uh, they all thought various things: Austria, Germany, France, Britain, and so on. But they didn't actually believe they didn't. What they believed was not correct, and the were all mis- misconception. And they didn't communicate. Well, they all thought it was
0: going to be all right because Wilhelm, and they, and the, Kaiser that, Wilhelm, was on his yacht in the Baltic, yeah. and
4: they started a world war. So, uh, this is the way wars okay.
0: start. Okay, I'm going to tell you uh, uh, a war that didn't start was the war over the yachtsmen, <laughs> uh, the five yachties who, um, who who went adrift into mm. Iranian. Uh, um, territorial waters. They were nicked for mm-hmm.
3: five days, six days. They've been there, yeah. and then suddenly, and um, they don't... kept their fancy haircuts Have you noticed? Yes, yeah, that, you know this, all this gel and everything. That's right. That's but you know, the, I mean, the
2: answer was blown wide apart last like night by an Iranian who said, uh, "I think you, you know, the questioner has got it a little bit wrong. The whole point was this yacht was owned by the king of Bahrain." And they, what the one thing that the Iranians don't want to do is upset Bahrain at the moment. So, when the king, well, I mean, it's a regional bah- power, they want to get on with them. Uh, and money. it was uh, the Brits were just thought to be minor players in bah- it. But you know, that the word in one.
3: Moscow is that the Chinese told uh, Obama when he came on that visit, Look, we are monitoring Iran, stop this rubbish, stop playing games. They don't have the bomb, when they'll have, we'll tell you. And This is a rumor going on, but have you noticed how the rhetoric became sort of, you know, more relaxed after that visit? Yeah. You know, we're not going to bomb. Nobody's talking. We're going to bomb mm-hmm. them tomorrow or something. I think something is happening behind the scenes, and now we see the Chinese. Well, wait, their one last well, oh, very quick thing: because yes. we've been
2: knocking the Foreign Office all day. Yes, good. The fact is, we have got an embassy in Tehran with a rather good ambassador, and he was doing yes, genuinely. Right. I think it's a guy Adams, right. and his father used to be in Cairo, and I think they're doing, you know, good. Leg work, whereas the Americans had these, uh, they're hikers. They've got to rely on the Swiss, you know, putting the cuckoo clocks away for lunch and going over there and talking. They've got nobody on the ground, I and their
0: that. men are still inside. Well, I tell you what, they're sort of relying on the Swiss. Fascinating this week that the Swiss parliament passed a law mm. banning uh, Islamic minarets. Minarets. Now that's that not was a referendum referendum. A referendum. Yeah. Not yeah. Well, they parliament. passed the law after the referendum. we will have
4: to overturn it.
0: OK, here we go. We're coming up to oh, half past the hour. It's 4.30 almost. You're listening to SITREP from BFPS Ready with me, Christopher Lee. If you've missed anything so far, just go to com forward slash SITREP and listen again. You could even try podcasting now. Sit Rep Overheard, it's the part of the programme when we think aloud about things... You wouldn't believe we've been thinking before that, but we think aloud about things that concern you but don't always come on your radar, like what's the difference between a pit bull and a hockey mom? Christopher Walker, what's the difference between a pit bull and a hockey mom? I'm not reading my script. Lipstick. Lipstick. Mm. That, of, of course, from Sit Rep's favourite hockey mom Sarah Palin. If you've got a favourite Sarah Palin uh, quote... Do email us, won't you? i uh, love to hear from you on that. You can get us at bfbs.com forward slash sitrep or, or somewhere like that. You'll get to it to us. Uh, tell me, Martin, you're in and out of the United States a lot. Palin, Sarah Palin, why is she so popular? Why? They just she failed. Love,
4: they just, no, they just love her because she comes across as the type of mom next door. And everybody can relate to her, especially the women (laughs) women can relate to her. And what the American uh, population doesn't like, American voters doesn't like, is a clever intellectual politician. They hate them. And they always vote them down. So, therefore, if you want to be elected, you have to be uh, somewhere in the middle. And Sarah Palin is pitching for the middle. Now, she's the bottom coming up. Uh, you mean the
2: Republicans? Yeah, a- anybody. Not the Americans as
4: such. The Americans as mm-hmm. such. They don't like clever politicians. What about Mr. Obama? He, scra- he's, he scraped in because he pretended that he was a moderate, <laughs> you see. And but it, I'll tell you, it's interesting is, uh, saying that, you know, what mm-hmm. about Obama? Because a lot of Democrats...
0: And now, again him, because over this policy on, on his, after his speech, a lot of the demo, Democrat uh, supporters were saying, no, 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 no. Does oh, Michael Moore
3: like started. Policy? He's gone, a, left. A, a, a produ- the, the, the director, the yeah. film director, he went for him big time. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I'm very is that dis- important? Well, because he's sort of the voice of the left of the uh, in America. America doesn't have a left. Well, It has a liberal. M- well, yes, but Michael Moore is one of those people who, who represents that liberal view, and he really went for him after How the speech. How many votes is he? get i mean can he can he bring well michael Moore actually brings votes because of his films i mean his films are very popular tell us a film well i mean this capitalism i forgot its name is the recent one i saw it about capitalism being not a not a good system <laughs> 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 i don't remember i don't remember films the film's name think Sarah to... <laughs> she's never going to be
2: uh, you know, in she, the White House. No, she's never going to be There's president. no chance. You see, you but she people? might be on television. As a very good show, you know. She'd be very, very, killer, very good days. for
0: the Republicans. Yeah. I mean, what I'm trying to get at here, Martin, is that Sarah Palin...
2: you want us to describe the photograph of her, in her on the front of Newsweek no, yeah, I, don't. No, I,
0: no, I don't. No, what's I don't. What's her secret? No, no. no. I, I'm, I mean, I like this idea that somebody can say what's the difference between a pit bull and a hockey mom, and it's lipstick. i like, as we reported last week, she says, you know, if you're in a Husky team, if you're not the front Husky, then the view is just the same. I'd <laughs> like that sort of thing, because people <laughs> report it. What I'm trying to get at is what is it about American politics at the moment? What is it about America that can keep a Sarah Palin running... On front covers of Newsweek, can keep her running. She's got a book I know at the moment, so she's got a publicity. Well, machine. she's
2: going around America she's in a coach with a picture on the yeah, front. She's telling, a former beauty and queen and, and she's politically totally incorrect. Those yeah. three things are quite helpful. So, what does
0: it tell us about America? <laughs> they well, they're getting
2: me. fed up with these. Yeah, but we've got to understand this. We? Hillary Clinton.
4: Well, American politics at present is in crisis. Uh, the whole economic system, where markets are rational and we know how to run the world economy, and all you've got to do is follow an American example, that's been exploded. Mm. Uh, if you look at Afghanistan and Iraq and Iran and North Korea, suddenly our, our military might mm. doesn't seem to have any impact. And the Middle East? the uh, Middle, Middle East, things? that's dreadful. So what does the average American say? Uh, there's something wrong here. And you go back to, if you like, the fireplace. And the far side chat, and you go back to this the, is Reagan. Yeah, you're talking yeah, about mm. uh, or Roosevelt. Yeah. You go back to that, and you talk. You start talking as if you were a middle class or. Uh, just okay, a but but, but she's like also
3: anti-establishment, in a sense, because everybody's fed up mm. with, America, with the D Washington, D.C. Well, her D. family is, anyway. No, I mean, Washington, yeah, D.C., everybody, is, everybody is fed up with them. Yeah, so yeah. now they see somebody outside the system, and she speaks in a human way.
0: <laughs> but we also have to remember, don't we, that in, in the United States, I mean, 3,000-something mm. miles across well, the 50, 50 states, people who live in, let's say, I don't know, um, Astoria, Astoria, Washington state... Mm. Are only interested in what's going on in Seattle. They're not interested going on in Washington. But she does know what's going on in Russia.
2: She said she could see it from Alaska. Yeah, she could see it. She from She knew exactly what was going on there. Yeah,
4: yeah, yeah. So done, <laughs> but the, done, she, we, she's, she's great because she brings sanity. Uh, because that president. Oh, come is,
0: on, she doesn't bring
4: sanity. She does bring sanity because she talks uh, normal language, and the average person, the average woman. Normal language
0: person. is not is not sanity, is it? it? Is insane yeah. that's normal well, language. Well, in a four
4: hundred page book,
0: yes.
2: eleven pages are devoted to political affairs. So that's. I think it does tell us a lot about the
0: American. Well, that's public. what I'm talking about. But I'm about. talking about the Republican part book, of the book. I don't think
2: Democrats are flocking to vote for her or even read her okay.
0: book. Okay, they won't be there on March the twelfth. 2012 twelve. Yeah, the be New the Hampshire vice. primaries? No, no, no? She won't well, figure?
2: No, she might figure, but I can't see the, de- the Democrats uh, supporting this. This no, is very much a Republican. Don't forget, she, 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 there's no alternative in the Republican camp to her. You asked us uh, earlier, mm. I think. I mean, look who she's
0: facing. Name me mm. another American politician. Apart from the ones that are in the White
4: House. or Gold Martin, you know what? <laughs> Okay. Joe Lieberman. And who's heard of him? I haven't even bought a motorcycle the Israeli cabinet. He sounds like a boxing, uh, <laughs> a, a, a boxing promoter. No, come on, seriously. A name yeah. me an American yeah. politician. I mean, most people think that's here, but what? You see? Claire McCaskill was on television. I'd never heard of her. She was a Democrat. Well, the last one we Democrat. could name,
2: poor guy, it was Edward Kennedy. I mean... Yeah. Uh, yeah. That was, uh, but there you are. That's what I'm, what I'm um, saying
0: is, is about it. And that's why I'm wondering... And if what's going to
2: happen if the same happens to Mr.
0: Obama as happened to Kennedy's two brothers? Well, let's uh-huh. not think that one through. Listen, I also want to you know, come back to my original point, I suppose, half an hour ago, and that is that the Obama speech will be forgotten, long forgotten, the words of it... Um, um, about Afghanistan because, uh, somebody said earlier, it's what happens in practice that will be mm. remembered. But what he said in defining America, to me, sounded like Roosevelt. It sounded like Reagan. Uh, those are the sort of people that make these great definitions of what America is. Mm. If you read the speech and mm. listen to it, you start to get to a question, do we have to understand this? Because if we're, if we're continental Europeans, certainly, voting today or deciding between today in Brussels or Monday in Mons when the defence secretaries meet, what are we going to do to contribute to this American uh, surge in Afghanistan? These are the things that their, their electorates have to understand. Mm. Do we like America? Do we actually go back to the point that was made uh, last year, around about this last year, the Americans have voted for our president because mm. the American president is our president, discuss. Well, well his Obama. new best
2: friend, Mr. Sarkozy, has already told him he's not sending any more soldiers.
4: But
0: uh, Obama... He, he'll, he'll made he'll
2: that clear.
4: No. Obama no. was signalling in that speech that uh, America is no longer an interventionist. And his invention is power. Mm. He looked straight into the camera, didn't he, when he said yeah, that? He's saying He'd that. He'd been now. left and
0: right on the and ear Afghanistan <laughs> and Iraq,
4: I didn't start them. We're going to get out of those. And once we get out of those, I'm not in, going to intervene anywhere. In other words, it's going to be persuasion, it's going to be ideas and so on. It's not military force. But did he and that, that is, if he takes that, if that is carried
3: through, that is momentous. Did he really convince the Europeans that this is a war, a joint effort war? It's not. No. The Europeans. You you just uh, uh, gave us all those quotes. Uh, I mean, not well. Earlier. From the papers. Yes, and they are not not really very happy about this.
2: No, and exactly. some Europeans are much. And I that's why you g- failed. I could have because given you some from the German he, press, which but were far more. His rude whole about speech him, should yeah.
3: have been: let's be in one boat here mm. that's what the, his speech writers should have written mm. but he was talking about America, you know, all that stuff mm. he lost it, well, I it know won't he won't even come
2: it. to the end I of tell the you, COVID if I was his advisor crash, I would I have done his
0: speech
3: completely yeah. in a different way
0: right, time out um, listening to that, Professor Paul Rogers the Department of Peace Studies at the University of Bradford Paul, um, as uh, President Obama said July 2011 well, it's the end of the war on terror, isn't it then?
6: Well, that's what he says, Uh, although I think that is more about starting to draw down American troops rather than having got out completely from Iraq and Afghanistan. I very much doubt whether the United States will be out of either country. But he is obviously going for a major surge. It's a very tight timetable, and that's what this is all about. The demands are extraordinary in terms of um, scaling down the threat from the Taliban paramilitaries and the many other militia groups trying to turn around the deep endemic corruption in the Karzai administration, training an Afghan national army, which lacks an officer corps, uh, trying to turn the Afghan police into something workable. They're certainly not at present. And all the time attempting to do this, when in a sense the Pakistani government is always interested in Indian influence in Afghanistan, and if anything, would like the Taliban to have quite a strong stake in the future. So it's an incredible task that has been set. I think it's a measure of what I would call the toxic legacy, which has been left to Obama by the Bush administration, but he has to handle it, and he's taking a pretty bold way of doing it, but there's no guarantee it's going to work.
0: Now, you see, some of the re- uh, reaction is, oh, well, this speech was in, uh, to the American people, but it was also to President Karzai, wasn't it?
6: It certainly was, but the problem is that within the corrupt problems in Kabul, you have two particular factors one is Karzai now has a number of debts to repay to the people who helped him, let's put it politely, manipulate the recent election. And the second thing is when there is any thought in those circumstances of the major force the United States withdrawing, then those at the center who can get money in the short term through corrupt practices will do it. They're saving for a rainy day and possible exile. So you have those two major issues which are actually going to make it more difficult uh, to bring the corruption under control.
0: I was reading um, your paper for the Oxford research group um titles, Global Security After the War on Terror. Yeah. How would you how then do you judge the war on terror could be ended? How would we know?
6: I think it will slowly peter out now, uh, depending very much on what happens in Afghanistan and depending on whether stability is retained in Pakistan. I think the al-Qaeda movement is still a major problem. Um, It's lost many of its leaders, but new leaders are coming to the fore. But on the other hand, you are seeing a different attitude, as your your colleagues already said, Mm -hmm. in the perception from the United States. And it's worth remembering that, in fact, Obama's Cairo's speech did have quite an impact. My own view is that if you were able to get some sort of just settlement on the Israeli Palestinian side, plus a slow degree of stability in Afghanistan, then one could say the war would be petering out. But that's three to five years hence and dependent on a peace deal between the Israelis and Palestinians. It's a very tall order.
0: And that can depend upon the the political makeup in both Palestine and also uh, areas of influence in Palestine and also the political makeup in Israel itself.
6: Yes, and the extent to which the United States can use its very considerable influence in Israel uh, to move the Israeli government towards a peace process always assuming, as you say, that there is a Palestinian political entity that can cope with that.
0: Yes, because it's not always simply the Israelis in this. Um, there are a lot of ifs in that, aren't there?
6: I'm afraid there are, and that is really the huge problem, and as I say, it's, it's a reflection of the legacy that Obama has inherited, but he wanted the presidency; and he's got it, and this is the bigger, biggest issue he has to wrestle
0: with. A lot of people at the moment also writing um, an, Oxfam, an Oxfam report, there's one from the Centre of Strategic and International Studies, in Washington, D.C., saying that poverty makes wars happen. Um, I, think, uh, as, uh, I think that's reasonably uh, obvious. Um, but the wealth-poverty divide, which you discuss, um, that is something which is not at all easy to fix.
6: No, it's not. And it, I'm, I'm not so sure it's a case that poverty makes conflict happen. Marginalization certainly does. And what you have is the majority of the population across the world relatively marginalized but far more educated and knowledgeable about their own marginalization. I I suspect that in 20 years time we may look back and say maybe the Al-Qaeda movement wasn't the real marker. Maybe it was the Naxalite rebellion in India which is causing so many problems not widely reported for the Indian government. And that is a revolt from the margins. And that I think may be one of the markers for the future. And in a sense, if we think that one can control things by, if need be, military force, that may be mistaken in an era of increasing irregular warfare.
0: Yeah, and if you said to most people, well, there's quite a Maoist uh, rebellion or terrorist organization in India. They'd look at it as if you were daft, is Absolutely, mm-hmm.
6: but more than half of all the states in India are now affected by the Naxalite rebellion. The Indian government is currently putting together a force of, I think it's something like 80,000 military and paramilitary forces to try and control the development of the rebellion. It's a major issue, and it's quite extraordinary that it's hardly ever reported in the West.
0: Where do you put Pakistan in all this After the, in the post-Obama
6: speech? Well, Pakistan. The the speech has not been received well in Pakistan. But you always have the fundamental problem there. That while the Pakistani army elite may be really keen to control the extremists within Pakistan, it always looks to India as a major threat. It wants influence in Afghanistan through a kind of idea of defence in depth. Think back to the Mujahideen in the 1980s and the Taliban in the late 1990s. So, essentially, Pakistan is looking to get some sort of result in Afghanistan, which gives it influence. And it's very unhappy at the extent of Indian influence in and around Kabul at the present time.
0: Paul, stay with us. I want to bring um, a couple of people here in the studio into this. Martin, um, this whole idea of actually understanding the breadth and the cause of terrorism, it's something which, if you look at government statements in this country, at least, uh, you think they don't really
4: understand all this. No, because we're a developed country. And uh, I think terrorism in a highly developed uh, democracy, highly developed economy with civil society and so on, terrorism is irrational. And that was very, very difficult to grasp. Uh, irrational from our point of view. From our point of view, because you have to go back, say, to the Irish uh, 150 years ago and so on uh, to get something similar in this country, uh, or perhaps the beginning of the 20th century, the anarchists and so on. Uh, but if you go to Russia, uh, terrorism is understood. It's, it's in the genes because, if you like, European terrorism really develops in Russia in the 19th century and, and it becomes – then Spain as well. Spain was highly developed with the anarchists, with terrorism and so on. Now, those countries can understand terrorism, but uh, I think we – the French to a certain extent, yes, but – and the Germans to a certain extent – we have great difficulty. And I think the Americans have great difficulty because they see terrorism as totally irrational because they see it doesn't – It doesn't go anywhere. It starts and it ends, and these people destroy themselves, and they have no uh, agenda except destroying the state. It's the belief belief that if you destroy uh, a a functioning government and a functioning state, then it will collapse, and out of that, Phoenix-like, you'll have a better state. Paul, there is a
0: point here um, that we have to distinguish between our seemingly modern definition of terrorism or perception of terrorism and um, some of the ones that Martin was talking about there because mostly in hi- history terrorism has been against a particular state or organ- a society but now it is supposedly international.
6: Yes, it is. Uh, and I think this is where to some extent, you would distinguish between the Taliban, which may use terror methods, but is essentially an Afghan nationalist movement, and al-Qaeda, which is much more of a transnational phenomenon, which certainly uses terror as part of its aims. But remember, al-Qaeda is a political entity. It's an unusual one, because based on a religious belief, it, is seen, it sees itself as very long-term. It works on a timescale entirely differently to normal political revolutions. But it is transnational. It is rather different. But it may still be a marker for the future because we do now live in a much more globalized world where irregular groups can actually act across boundaries with greater ease than, say, 100 years ago.
0: Um, I mean, this asks asks the question, therefore, um, can terrorism win?
6: Terrorism itself almost certainly can't. I mean, if you take the example of al-Qaeda... If it was to achieve an Islamist state, then almost certainly that state would fall apart within four to five years because it cannot maintain the kind of rigidity of the rule which will be proposed. But one also has to appreciate that the borderline between irregular warfare and terrorism and insurgency, that certainly can win in particular conflicts, and there are many examples of that in history. If not winning, then at least achieving a changed political settlement (coughs) as a result of the impact of the activities undertaken. Paul
0: Rogers, thank you very much indeed. Christopher Walker, Northern Ireland is a perfect example, or is it that a terrorist group may not have won, thinking of Sinn Féin IRA, but it changed the political makeup of of the province.
2: Yes, and I couldn't help uh, thinking when I heard Paul speaking there so lucidly that that great phrase, you know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter. And
0: uh, that was what Bush... Or Mujahideen, freedom fighters.
2: Yes, yep. uh, and what Bush seemed to completely fail to sort of see was that was the case. <laughs> you know that you just came out uh, rather like those old cartoons with a fizzing bomb and a black hat, and you were a terrorist. But to some people, oh, you're no, no, a no, no, hero. no. I,
0: I have to tell you, you were then an anarchist.
2: Well, yes, All the great cartoonists
0: call those people anarchists.
2: Yes, but he just branded people as terrorists without thinking That's right. why they had become such. Yes, um, until you understand why they've become it, they're just. You remember that
0: Michael. Geez, yeah, Michael Cummings, the the uh, the political cartoonist, said that uh, when you uh, when he drew an anarchist, you did had a dark a cloak, a dark hat, probably a beard, and a fizzing uh, what is it? A fizzing a Christmas pudding uh, in, in your hand. When you drew a terrorist, you ha- actually had to give him an armband with his. Whether you IRA or whatever on the side, because <laughs> nobody would understand. Martin, I mean. There are two types you.
4: of terrorists those you can negotiate, the government can negotiate with, the government they are fighting, uh, you can negotiate with and arrive at a settlement. And those with whom you can't. And when it comes to Islam, you can't negotiate with them. And I would disagree with Paul. Uh, he he says that if Al Qaeda uh, took over Afghanistan, let's. Take, for example, they couldn't sustain their power. They can do that easily if they develop the natural resources. The U.S. Geological uh, Survey has come out uh, with a statement uh, after uh, looking at Afghanistan saying it is potentially enormously rich. And therefore, all Al-Qaeda has to do uh, is, like the Chinese communists, you have political power and then you bring in the capitalists who develop the natural resources. And then with that money, you keep yourself in power
3: forever. Right. The big difference between terrorism, uh, Martin mentioned Russian terrorism, this was political terrorism, it was targeted at the state. With, the no, to
0: explain when and what
3: 19th century, Russian terrorists would always, they, they killed the Tsar, one of the Tsars, Alexander II was murdered by them. They killed generals, governors and so on. Now, what did they want? They, they wanted to undermine the state itself. They never hit civilian population ever because they... they, they did, want to run the state? They, they, well, they wanted to undermine the state and then see what happens in the chaos. So they were anarchists, not terrorists. Well, they no. were still terrorists. No, no, no. They used they, terrorist they methods. Believed. But the problem is this. This new generation is criminalized terrorism because the moment you start hitting innocent civilians, you become a criminal. Because there's no way you can explain to me that you're fighting a political battle, and that's why you killed women and children in the underground in London. It doesn't work like this. This is a criminalized group. And that's why I think the current terrorists, they will never win. Because they do not have a system which can be Mm. actually turned into a political machine. Mm doesn't work like but that. But you
2: remember Mrs. Thatcher said she'd mm-hmm. never have the uh, now dead Israeli Prime Minister Menachem Begin crossing into number 10 because as far as she was concerned he was still a terrorist mm-hmm. and uh, there used to be a poster of him <coughs> uh, when he was wanted that used to be uh, floated around the magazines and newspapers with the British price on his head and um, there this man became the man who made peace with Egypt. So yeah, but the, the, difference
3: is, the difference is because they were political terrorists. They they were not criminalized terrorists. They had a and an they idea, murdered a lot of uh, whereas here, civilians whereas in the, the King David. The, car, the, current the, terrorists, mm, 47. the current terrorists, they want to create chaos, ki- killing everybody. Right. They don't distinguish. Martin? I was
4: going to say that if you look at the bombing of the Nevsky uh, Express from uh, Moscow, St. Petersburg, well, right of, ra- last Friday mm. evening, yeah. uh, and the Chechen, the Islamists, have claimed responsibility. Now, let's, for argument's sake, saying they were responsible. So why should they do it? You do it to undermine the willpower of the Russian government and the Russian state. If you do that uh, extensively throughout Russia, you undermine the state, and the state can
3: collapse uh,
4: because it becomes ungovernable.
3: Yes, but the population does not... The population turns against those terrorists. You must understand. That's where they lose. Because if you see that Nevsky Express uh, explosion, we immediately had a public uh, anger targeted at the terrorists. Why are they killing innocent civilians? That's the difference. Christopher, we have Mm -hmm. to remember, and
0: taking that, you know, the the population uh, says no, um, that when people in Washington this week were comparing the surge in Afghanistan with the surge in Iraq, they were wrong on one particular thing. The surge in Iraq worked because the Sunni civilian population fought alongside the Americans Mm -hmm. against Al-Qaeda. There's no sign that Pashtuns will fight yeah. against the Taliban. Against the
2: Taliban. And also, they fought for money. And the fact that they are now not getting so well paid as they were promised and the Americans are leaving could uh, mean that a nest of vipers has been created there. It wasn't as smooth as it looked for the long term. Because right. the Taliban and, and the have tel- the money to pay yes. the
3: fighters. That's yeah. another problem. And the the tali- fighters get more money than the police. I was astonished to learn that the, the police get $180 a, a month, whereas the, these guys get more. They're getting $20 three, a day. No, 300 something a day. And the oh, Taliban
4: that's. are Pashtun.
3: So, mm-hmm. a Pashtun The army is push-tun. So the... P- Katsai is Pashtun.
4: So the police are not necessarily pushed in? They will no. be recruited from the south. So push everybody's doon. got
0: to be Pushtun, who's yeah. going to be controlling the country. Otherwise, yeah. there's yeah. no chance of... So it. the Pushtun right. control the country. OK. Now, it's coming at 5-2, so I want to get on to this one. It's the 3rd of December today here in London. It's probably the 3rd of December again in a lot of places. But 20 years ago, on the 3rd of December, that's 1989, the Cold War ended, sort <clears> of. <throat> the United States President then, George H.W. <throat> Bush, uh, Herbert Walker Bush... Uh, and Soviet leader Mikhail Gorbachev arrived off Malta in two ships, Mr Gorbachev in the Maxine Gordiki and Mr Bush in the USS Belknap. At the time it was said to have been the most important summit since Yalta in nineteen forty five when Churchill and Roosevelt met Stalin and carved up Europe. Martin Macaulay, this was called at the time I remember the Sea Sick Summit. Why?
4: Uh, because the, apparently the Mediterranean uh, was, uh, were well, the conditions there, the waves were so high that it was the worst in 25 years. And Gorbachev couldn't, in fact, wouldn't go onto the uh, Soviet ship Gorky. And they couldn't go onto Belknap. There was a bit, to be a dinner on Belknap one evening, uh, which he couldn't get there. And apparently the, uh, uh, the crew on Belknap had a fantastic evening. Uh, and all the discussions well, on, on, on the Gorky? Uh, no, on the bell map oh, right. He was to be the guest, Gorbachev was to be the guest with the whole Soviet delegation and they refused, Gorbachev simply refused to get into a launch this is far too dangerous and all the uh, talks were basically uh, on Gorky which was, which was uh, on moored, moored in Valletta Harbour
0: I mean, was it uh,
3: Alexander, I know you've, you've got to go shortly but tell me this, was it really the end of the Cold War? Uh, in Russia you wouldn't have that feeling then that it was the end It was something sort of happening there, but there wasn't this overwhelming feeling, well, this is at a totally different age coming, you know, totally different times are coming. I think, technically speaking, the Cold War in a mental sort of state in Russia is still on. There's this suspicion of the West, and and, and, uh, I know President Putin just now came out with a speech saying that uh, uh, all those Russians who live in the West, they betrayed us. Okay, well, let let me tell you, I Mm -hmm.
0: went back and looked in my diary and notebooks, you see, and I've got Mr. Gorbachev saying, um, Alexander is leaving the room, Um, he didn't say that, Gorbachev said, Mm -hmm. the world is leaving one epoch and entering another. We are at the beginning of a long road to a lasting peaceful era. The threat of force, mistrust, psychological and ideological struggle should all be things of the past. I assure the President of the United States that I will never start a hot war against the USA. Martin, Christopher, this mm. sounds to me like a far more historical um, announcement and meeting, this C6
4: summit, than many people Yes, Say and there's so a famous it. statement, you haven't mm-hmm. quoted a famous st- statement by, by Shevardnadze, we have buried Hang the Cold War. Hang on,
0: Edward Shevardnadze was then the Foreign Minister, minister
4: of who, Russia, who was then to uh, resign a, a year later, uh, stating, we have now buried the Cold War at the bottom of the Mediterranean Sea. He made statements like that. and Mr. Thatcher said that the Cold War ended in 1988. And others regard December 1988 when Gorbachev went to the UN and unilaterally declared that the Soviet armed forces would be reduced by half a million men. They'd be reduced, uh, brought in from Eastern Europe and so on and so on. And people at the time thought, ah, that's marvellous. Actually, he needed the troops back in, in the Soviet Union because he feared... Afghanistan. Uh, no, he feared social unrest in the Soviet Union. Right. That's but I think also why
2: why we're not remembering it so much, and in fact remembering it more for its name, if we just start talking about the Malta summit, people would, uh, you know, raise their eyebrows. Surely it was the fact that the wall had fallen down, or uh, the Berlin Wall before, that rather overshadowed. That looked uh, much more days,
0: like. Just a few days Yes, before. well,
2: that looked much more like the end of the Cold War than a couple of the guys being seasick on a boat. Can I? They just
0: because we haven't got much time, let me let me try you on this one, Christopher. I was looking at the Bush. Uh, that's uh, George H. W. Herbert Walker Bush uh, um, was then president. I was looking at some of the people on his his delegation: oh. Paul Wolfowitz, then the United States Defense Policy uh, Under Secretary, Brent Scowcroft, at the National Security Advisor, etc.
2: Jack Matlock,
0: the uh, Ambassador. Moscow. Yeah. These are the guys who were the hawks. Who took us to war in, in Iraq. Well,
2: that's true, but also don't forget that his delegation had, I think, the most consummate US diplomat, James Baker... Yes. on it. And that, I mean, these he people were there. State
0: what? He was Secretary of State then. I thought you were going to
4: say he was sick but perhaps these other ones the
0: were. But the problem
4: was that the Malta summit decided nothing. It was a great disappointment because it was supposed to be at arms control. Arms control were irrelevant after the Berlin Wall went down.
0: Right. OK. Well, we're going down now because that's it for this week. My thanks to Christopher Water, Martin McCauley and Alexander Nikrasov, if you can hear me on in getting into a taxi. Join us here on Sitrep next week at 4 o'clock UK time where you can listen again and podcast anytime you like, bfbs.com forward slash sitrep. For now, me, Christopher Lee, and Mary in the Hut. Bye now.